Well, I have the privilege of ending our Glimpses of Jesus series. Hasn't it been great? This is our sixth character that we're looking at today. And um, I get to look at someone who is massive in the Jewish history. Um, and in the Bible, there's a lot on him. It's David's, not David Beckham, although he probably seems a bit like a king in our, our culture, isn't he? Um, and you know, the, the beautiful thing about this guy is, not this guy, King David in the Bible. Um, he was essentially, for the Jewish nation, he was part of what is known as really the golden era of Israel. And um, he is the standard, really, that the Jewish nation put on success when they look back in history. And um, he's probably the person who took the Jewish nation to its height of success that they see. Maybe apart from his son Solomon's, he saw all the splendor. But actually, for David's, um, they obviously saw Solomon was corrupted by wealth. Um, and David was known as a man after God's own heart. That's how they see him. And um, we see things actually at the beginning of his reign. We see how exemplary, exemplary he is. And um, right the way up until he sort of commits adultery with this woman is this pinnacle of the nation of Israel taking back some of the promised land that God said they would have. He unites the tribes of Israel back together. He has a phenomenal reign. We even have King David's school just across the road here in this Jewish community uh, because they are honoring King David. You know, this is, they put him on a high pedestal. And um, there's loads of things that I could look at today as we're looking at glimpses of Jesus. But I just want to look at three things. Um, it's a massive story, though. Uh, but I want to look at three things about him. And they're all related to being a king, okay, because we are worshiping King Jesus and David was King David. So I want to look at three things. His anointing is the first one. So just to give you a little bit of background to the story here, in case you don't know what was going on in Israel at this point. Um, obviously, we know that from um, Joshua, they'd come into the promised land. They marched in there. And God had told them to go and take the promised land. And the people of Israel had been led by um, judges for some time. And you've got Samuel, the prophet who's leading the people as well of Israel, until the people decided that when they looked around and they saw other nations, they all had kings in charge of them. And they decided, we want a king, actually. We want to be like the other nations. We want a strong king who's at the, at the forefront of our nation. And so they decided to appoint their own king, uh, even though Samuel the prophet had basically said, God could appoint you a king. But they said, no, we want to appoint a king here. It's King Saul. They went for this guy, Saul. Uh, who was, we're told, was a, a head taller than anybody else. Um, and people essentially were looking at the outside appearance of this guy. He was very impressive. He was obviously a warrior. He was big. He was strong. He looked the part. And um, they chose this guy. And they wanted someone, obviously, who could lead them to great victories. And Saul is anointed as the first king of the Israel nation there. And um, we soon realized that actually... This guy, although impressive from the outside, he didn't listen to God. He didn't obey what Samuel brought to him. So we very quickly see that um, there was a sacrifice he should have made at the end of a battle. He didn't make the sacrifice. Um, and essentially from, from that time on, we see that this guy with a very impressive outward appearance has very unimpressive character. Okay, And time and time again, actually, God gives him numerous opportunities uh, to obey him. Okay, gives him a lot of grace, but actually 
he continues to make the same mistakes, Saul. And so God basically says, do you know what? This guy is not going to be the king of Israel. And I'm going to choose the new king of Israel. And so we come to this story here that we're going to look at. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16. And Samuel, God speaks to Samuel. And Samuel's a bit disappointed, but we're going to read this. It's 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord. To the Lord, not the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Simon replied, yes, in peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass, but Samuel said, nor had the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all, your, all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep, Samuel said. Send for him, and we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him, and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and appointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Go to the next slide, guy. You know, it's strange here in this story that even Samuel, the prophet, who hears from God, is actually still expecting Eliab to become the king's, to become God's anointed king. Because again, he is being shaped in a way that he looks at the outward appearance. But as we find out, God isn't interested in the outward appearances of the heart. Uh, the outward appearance, he's interested in the heart. His ways, aren't they? They're so different to ours. Our natural inclination is to be drawn to what the world views as success. And, and we see that actually God has a very different measuring rod, don't we? And if it, to be honest, if it was down to sort of height and brawn, I was thinking about this. Let's face it, none of our leadership team would be here. We would have not made it in. Matt's trying to wrestle with that one, but yes, we wouldn't be in, pal. And what we see here is we see, we see Samuel anoint David with oil. And we're told that the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And you know, although the same Hebrew phrase is used here for spirit coming on David in verse 13, as was used when the spirit came on Samson and came on Saul, in fact, actually there was a difference here. 
because the spirit of the Lord didn't come on him for him to force his way to the throne. He came on him to bring contentment with life as he continued to tend the sheep and run errands for his father. So that means when Saul summoned him to the palace and told him to serve as a minstrel in a throne room, which actually should have been his, the spirit gave him the grace not to take that then. The Spirit gave him the grace to play this, this lyre, this harp, and polish Saul's shield as his armor bearer, when actually he should have been wearing the crown as king. And actually it was 15 years between Samuel anointing him, I think it's about 15 years, between his anointing and him becoming king over Israel. And you know, the Holy Spirit, as he comes on us, he's the spirit of obedience. And we see the exact reason for Saul's downfall, we know it was actually this disobedience that he had. This disobedience to God. He wanted to do things his way. He thought he could make things work his way and win those victories his way. But you know, David, we find out here, is God's chosen king. And he's anointed. And we're told that he was a man after God's own heart. We actually read that in the palace, even the servants confess that the Lord was with David. When the Holy Spirit came on him, the evidence of God being with him was on him and was witnessed by all. David was a man who was anointed and filled with the Spirit to carry out the work and the role that God had for him. His very name means God's beloved one. So how does this foreshadow Jesus? I'm sure many of us will have clocked in our heads what this is similar to. Obviously, at Jesus' baptism, we have him at this point where he's about to start his earthly ministry. He's about to be commissioned, and his father anoints him. And the Holy Spirit descends on him as he's about to carry out his work. And he has three years to wait until this call is absolutely fulfilled. Until he is recognized as the king of kings and lord of lords. We're actually told in Isaiah that he has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire. You know, he was a carpenter born in a little village called Bethlehem. Surprisingly, David was actually born in Bethlehem as well. But again, this man Jesus would have pressure from the Jewish nation to be a king, to conform to what others thought this king should look like. A king that actually would come and would bring down the Roman Empire, this oppression that they were feeling. But the Holy Spirit came on him, not to show off this incredible strength that he could have given him, like Samson, but to wait, to gather a band of men together and to teach them and train them. To show that actually victory doesn't have to be bought by brute force. But it was in God's perfect timing and by his power. Both David and Jesus were God's anointed kings. Chosen by him and full of the spirit to outwork the calling that God had on their lives. Secondly, they were conquering kings. Okay, now this is... Possibly one of the best well-known stories in the whole of Scripture. And actually, when we think about preachers, um, it's probably the most preached on passage as well that you may have heard. 
Um, but I want to just look at this as a conquering king. Just to summarize the story, the Israelite army are encamped on one side of the valley of Elah. And the Philistine army, their opposition and their neighbors were camped on the other. And the Philistine army came out and they have this giant, three meters tall, that's nine foot for you guys, nine feet tall, came out called Goliath. And the Philistine giant essentially challenged any man from, the Israel, Israel, uh, from, from Israel to come and fight him. It was a one-on-one battle to the death. And whoever wins this battle takes the victory. And just aside, just as we think about this, actually it's so important that we're coming and looking at a Christ-central view on this passage. Because this passage is often preached in a very different way. It's preached with the message of, you know, we should all just face up to our giants, whatever they are. This is called Jack the Giant Killer. Got that off, you know, Jack. Let's just, Jack, just face up to your giants. Just like David did. And surely you can win. Any giant in your life, you can win. That's how this passage is often preached. I want to say, unfortunately, that's what what this message is actually about. And as we come with Christ-central lenses, we start to see what it's actually about. So just to give you a bit of background, we have Saul here, the king, as I've mentioned. This guy is is a head taller than anybody else. And um, he's obviously not as big as Goliath, but he's obviously, he's fairly big. And he's been chosen because of his stature, because of his fighting ability. And his king, he should have probably been the one to have been going out to fight. But we actually find out, we read in this story of Goliath that Saul was dismayed and greatly afraid. To be honest, the whole of the Israelite army was in that place. Jonathan was there, Saul's son. And actually in chapter, chapter 14, we see that he was also a commander in Saul's army. And he engineered this great victory in chapter 14. But even he was not able to take on this big Philistine, Goliath. Saul's general, Abner, he was such a skilled fighter that we find out that he killed one of David's best warriors later on with absolute ease. And yet he wasn't standing up to fight this Goliath. Even Eliab, this is the guy that was David's eldest brother, who Samuel looked at and went, yep, he's got to be it. Even he was scared to take him on. And this is in the background, actually, in this passage, we find out that the king would have been offering great things to the man who stood up to take on this challenge. Of great riches, a royal wedding, exemption from paying taxes. I mean, who wouldn't want to give that one a go? But actually, none of these things are enough to convince any of them to be the hero here. So they sit there for 40 days, camped out, wondering what they're going to do. Who's going to get the courage to make it, to go out and do this? Do you know, this story is actually not about how we become the heroes. It's a story, actually, that is to remind us that we can't beat the giants in our lives. We can't do it ourselves. And God uses Goliath here to teach the Israel nation to actually confess their own lack of power so that they would cry out for him to provide them with a hero. And we know who this hero is, don't we, in this story. He's sent by his father, 
actually, to bring food to his brothers and to the king. And David comes in, and he is the one. He's this young shepherd boy. As I say, he was born in Bethlehem. He's been anointed already as God's anointed king. And his brother Eliab, he comes in saying, who is this Philistine who defies the God of Israel? But Eliab, his oldest brother, is upset. He's upset at David coming into the camp and proclaiming this to the camp. He gets angry and he accuses him of evil in his heart. Alive in this story actually represents that sort of confidence and human strength that we have. So he's furious at the idea that he needs to humble himself and admit his weakness in fear and make way for this youngest brother. Saul, we find out, tries to dress him up in his armor. He says, look, if you're going to go out, you must have this, you must have this, you must have this to protect yourself. And he probably represents our desire to rule instead of God. That's who Saul represents in this story. Our desire to do things our way. I want to say just in this story, let's not try and fool ourselves and put ourselves in the David role. Because that's what we're preached at. You're David. Take on these giants. Actually, we are more like the Saul's and the Eliab's in this story. Cowering away when actually it counts. Trying to do things on our own strength. Angry when we see other people stepping out in faith. But you know, David knows that God will win this victory through him. And when Goliath, we're told when Goliath looks at David and he looks at him with his sling and his stones, he accuses him of coming to fight with mere sticks. That's what he actually says. There may even be a hint in this passage towards the foolishness of the cross. And you know, this story is full of people who laugh at the foolishness of God's chosen Savior and his weapons. But we know what happens at the end of this battle, don't we? And the end of the ultimate battle that Jesus would fight. Do you know Jesus? Guys, go to the next one. Jesus was victorious against the ultimate Goliath. That's Satan. The one who comes to steal and destroy. Of sin and death, he conquered. And he conquered not with a full army behind him, but he went onto that battlefield alone. It was just him. And he conquered death and sin, not with great weapons, but on a stick, on a tree. And you know, just as David was willing to risk his life as a shepherd against lions and even bears, we found out on Wednesday, (laughs) just as he was so willing to risk his life in this battle for the God of Israel and the nation of Israel, Jesus was not only willing to risk his life, but he actually knew he would have to lay down his life. That's the way that victory was going to come. He laid down his life for the sheep. That's our conquering king right there. And just as a side, if we look at the story of David and Goliath, what happens after that battle, we see that all those men who were cowering in the, couch, in, in the trenches for 40 days, David chops off Goliath's head. He takes it to Jerusalem. 
And the other guys, they see David win this victory. And what do they do? They get up and they run and they storm and they plunder the Philistines and everything they've got. Suddenly, seeing the victory of David gives them great courage and boldness to proclaim that victory as they march forward. They are actually empowered through this victory of David's. And you know, we too, as the body, as the church, we get to stand in the victory of Christ, don't we? The one that he's won for us, not just on a battlefield at one specific moment of time, but this victory was once and for all time. And we get to share in this victory with him. And we're given boldness and courage from him because of this victory that we stand in. That's our conquering king. Finally, God-centered king. Do you know, David was known, as I've said, as this man after his own heart. And I think that was due to his humility. When we look at him, his desire not to take all the glory as king, but to point to another. To point to God as the true king of Israel. That was really the thing that distinguished him from the rest. He was constantly looking in his life at how to exalt God and bring him the glory. And it's funny because we obviously have the President Trump come in and you have these first hundred days, don't you? Where he is really showing his priorities. He's establishing what are his major priorities going on as he, as he comes into this presidency. We know for Trump it's about a wall <laughs> being built around Mexico and basically stopping any foreign people coming into his country. Trump is setting out his stall. He's setting out his priorities. And actually we see here this God-centered king that David shows us some of his priorities as he enters his first hundred days, shall we say, of kingship. So firstly, I just want to take you through this. It's a little bit longer at this point. He decides to go and take Jerusalem. Here we have Jerusalem. There's that red line coming along, if you can see. This was a city that was actually part of the promised land. It's important just to understand what's going on here in the history. God's given this place to Joshua as the Israelites crossed over from the desert. But the Jebusites had taken back this land. They'd managed to hold on to it, even though they'd actually been attacked several times. They'd managed to rebuild this city. Do you know, even Saul in his reign, he tried to take the city, which was actually only three miles from where Saul lived. And yet he failed so miserably that he didn't give it another go. And the Jebusites, they were so convinced that this city proved that Yahweh, the God of Israel, could not give his people the whole promised land. And they laughed. We find out they laughed at David. And they said this. They said, even the blind and the lame can ward you off. It's mocking him. Come on, even our blind and lame can get you, stop you from coming in here. And actually what we find out is David comes into his reign. He is determined, firstly, to conquer Jerusalem. And this is because he loved God's name and he wanted to honor him. And this is why that I've mentioned he chops off Goliath's head after this battle of the Philistines. And he takes Goliath's head and he sticks it on these gates outside of Jerusalem. They don't 
Jerusalem is not theirs at this point in time. But this is a warning. This is David's placing his head saying, I'm coming for you. This city is mine. Now the thing about this, go to the next slide. He knows, oh no, you're on it. He knows that this city has great significance because of the promised lands. But it has significance for other reasons for the Jewish nation. It has significance because he knows that in Genesis 14, or in history for him, that a king and a high priest called Melchizedek provides prayer and bread and wine to help Abraham win a significant battle. He knows that this city of Jerusalem, it signifies the provision of God. Salem, it was in those days. And he appears from nowhere as the ruler, the king, and the priest of Salem. And David knows that this is significant for God's plans. He knows that in Genesis 22, when Abraham was asked to go and sacrifice his son Isaac, that God's provision was brought on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Everything about Jerusalem signifies the provision of God. The very name Jerusalem means foundation of peace. And David wanted the people, his people, to be reminded and instilled with faith that Yahweh is the great provider. It speaks of peace and prosperity. It fulfills the promises of God. And it says to the Jebusites that no foreign gods will be able to stand against Yahweh. It points to the very place where one day God would provide the ultimate sacrifice. His son on that same mountain. Secondly, David knew the history of his people. And he had a desire for them to encounter Yahweh and his presence. And actually, when we read 1 Samuel, we can read the story and we see the, the battles that are going on. But there's, a, there's, an, there's another story going on behind the scenes in this book when you look closely. Maybe even a more significant story going on. And we may not be aware of it. And I just want to use this as an example of it. going to say any ideas, but it's coming from the screen. Another story going on in David's life is about the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? I know it looks like a really poor Ark. I've really, I've really tried hard on this one. Where's the budget for props? I don't know. Uh, it's obviously not there. No expense spared, I know. Just to give you an idea of what was going on then. So the Ark of the Covenant. As the Israelites traveled through the desert after they come through Egypt, the Ark of the Covenant, Moses went on to um, the mountain and God spoke to him. He gave him these tablets of stone, the laws, the commandments, and um, they were told to build this Ark of the Covenant where God would dwell. So we know that actually God is everywhere, but his very presence was going to be in the Ark of the Covenant. And this was to be put into the tents, the throne room where God would reside. It would remind the people that God's presence is with them as they go. Yeah? That's the story of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside, tablets of stone. Okay? Presence of God. And so 
we know that actually as, as they came into the promised lands, we heard about it as Joshua came through. Actually, the Ark of the Covenant came first, didn't it? It led the way. Actually, the waters opened up as the Ark of the Covenant was put down. As they marched around the walls, the Ark of the Covenant went first. And what's actually happened is later on in time, the Israelites had a defeat against the Philistines. They were constantly battling with the Philistines. And some of the guys decided, you know what? We've seen this happen before. The ark came into Jericho and we saw the walls fall. They got superstitious and they decided, we're going to bring the ark of the covenant out onto the battlefield because surely God's with us and we will win the victory. So they bring this ark of the covenant out onto the battlefield and they lose massively because they hadn't listened. The Ark of the Covenant was about the presence of God. It was about God speaking to them and them listening and obeying. So they thought, we take this out and we win. God said, no, you don't win because of this box. You win because I speak and you obey. You win through hearing and listening. And so they lose this box, this Ark of the Covenant to the Jebusites. Uh, Not the Jebusites, to the Philistines. So the Philistine army take this Ark of the Covenant back to their place. And they actually put it up, they take it to their, to their temple, and they put it right next to their god, Dagon. And this is a great story. This is just an aside, just to give you an understanding of what's going on. They put it beside their god, Dagon, and Dagon looked like this, okay? He was a statue, and he stood like this. And he says they put the Ark of the Covenant next to it. And it's great what happens the next day. They come to their temple, and Dagon is like this. He's fallen over, and he's facing the Ark, and he's head down. And they think, oh, that's strange. So they pick up Dagon again, and they return the next morning. And this time, Dagon is head down, and he's lost his arms and his legs and his head. So they say it's just the trunk that's left of Dagon. As if this isn't enough warning to them, they hold on to the Ark of the Covenants for seven months. But what happens during that seven months is they, they get all sorts of things, plagues, um, diseases, And they decide, do you know what? We need to take this back because it's just killing us. So they take it back to the Israel nation and um, they take it back to the Beshemites and it's been put in a field. And we find out, I think these guys were part of the Levite priest clan. And we find out one day there's about 70 of them and they come over to the ark. And do you know what they did? They decided to look inside. And we're told they all die. Because they'd lost the importance. This is, this is the presence of God. It's the Holy of Holies. You can't go messing around just looking inside the Ark of the Covenant. And um, what they then do is they decide they have to take it somewhere safe. So they take it to the house of this guy called Abinadab. And it stays there for 20 years. We're told that Saul never consulted the Ark. Okay? He was too impatient. But actually what we see is David here, his intent is to bring the Ark of the Covenants back to where it rightfully belongs. He wants to bring the presence of God back to the central stage of the Israel nation, to Jerusalem. Okay? So he goes and he collects it and he manages to bring it, not on the first attempt actually, he messes it up on the first attempt. A guy dies. He then decides, I have to do this the right way. He goes back, looks at it, goes, okay, I'm going to bring the priests along. 
Every six steps, they have to make a sacrifice. It's, it's, it's mental. But he was so determined to get this Ark of the Covenant, what everything symbolized, the presence of God, back into his nation, back on central stage. He personally learned, hadn't he, as a shepherd boy, a love for the presence of God. He was determined to restore the ark back to the tabernacle where it belongs. And there was an understanding, actually, that he was God's servant. Even though he was the king, he understood who the rightful king was. In fact, when he was an outlaw running away from Saul in battles, his main complaint was that it meant he was to live far away from the presence of God. But something significant happens when when David brings this ark safely back to the city, he shows the Israelites something has changed in their relationship with Yahweh. David now dresses in a priest's ephod. And he himself personally sacrifices outside his new tabernacle. And we actually find out that he's acting now as a king and a priest. What's he doing? Why has he suddenly done this? Actually, he is reestablishing the order of Melchizedek. And he's pointing again. He's pointing towards the Messiah to come. And you know, he doesn't create a room to hide the ark away from the worshippers who come to this new tabernacle. He wants to point to a day when the Messiah will tear down the dividing curtain that Moses hung between the worshipper and God. It's why he actually encourages the nation of Israel to come, whether priest or layperson, to enjoy the intimacy of worshipping in the presence of God. And you know, he goes on to offer, he sees his own surroundings. He's a king. He has seen success. He's got a great house. And he looks and he sees this tent that the ark's in. And he says, this, this can't do. I need to build a place that is worthy of Somewhere where God can reside. So he says, God, I want to build you an amazing temple. And actually, God turns him down. Says, it's not going to be you. It's going to be your son that builds this temple for me. But God gives an amazing promise at the end of that. The reality is for David, he wants to honor God. He's focused not on his own glory, but on God's. So the question at the end is, how does this foreshadow Jesus' ministry? Do you know, Jesus was pretty God-centered, really, wasn't he? (laughs) Let's be honest. Firstly, he was himself God incarnate. So he is actually the embodiment of God. But aside from that, actually, we see Jesus pointing towards his father. Did you know that? His ministry, he's constantly pointing towards the Father. Just a few examples. Jesus said, this is in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. Another thing he says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
And he also says in Luke 22, he says, Father, if you're willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He's pointing to his father. He wants to bring absolute honor to his father. He is God incarnate himself. And yet actually his desire is to be obedient to the father. Isn't it? Even there in the garden of Gethsemane where he knows he has to lay down his life. He wants to honor his father. He, cho- he can choose. He can choose to honor or not. And yet his desire, everything in him, is about pointing to him and honoring and exalting his father. Actually, what we see Jesus do, we see him establish a new kingdom. Okay? We find out, obviously, in Jerusalem, he points the disciples to go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This Jerusalem, this centerpiece, is no longer just Jerusalem. This kingdom that he's going to have, the capital is not in Jerusalem. It's the ends of the earth. That's where God's kingdom is to be established. We know that Jesus is known as, as the great high priest. He was the great sacrifice. And the provision of salvation, not just for the Israelites, not just one battle, but he was the salvation for all of mankind for all time. We know he was the very presence of God manifested on earth. He knew that people needed to know God's presence. And he knew that God needed a new temple to dwell in. And he accomplished all of this on the cross in that one victory. He made a way for God's presence to dwell and live inside each of you and I. He's cleansed us. He's made us a new creation by his victory. So that we could be his new temple. Okay? Forget bricks and mortar. He had something better to bring. Something far better. This was a living temple that he was going to create. I just want to read you this. um, It's on there now. This was the promise given to David when he offered to build this temple. And God said, you know, actually there's been too much sacrifice in this area. There's been too much bloodshed, and I'm going to get your son to do this. But the Lord says this, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. There's a promise here that foretells Jesus. Jesus is in the line of David, actually, okay? One day, there would be a greater king, Jesus, who would come and would establish far greater things than this great king David would ever be able to establish. He was the one who would have a kingdom forever and ever and ever that will not fall, that will exceed all expectations, that will gather People that we can't even count. This great kingdom to the ends of the earth. Multitudes of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He would conquer the ultimate victory. I hope 
as we've done this series, that you've realized how the whole Bible points to Jesus. Actually, Jesus was pointing to the Father, but the Father exalted the Son. Okay? The Father exalted the Son in his victory. As he became victorious, the Father knew he was going to say, hold on, all honor and glory go to the Son. He is the one who's conquered. Just to say on this, we've obviously become kings in the royal court. We've been anointed with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We share in the ultimate victory of the cross. I want to say this. We now have a choice to live as men and women who look to put God at the center of our lives. Coming quickly, humbly, and repentantly when we mess up like David. Or we can choose to be like Saul's. Doing things in our own strength. Not really listening to what God is really asking us to do. But God has given us the power to keep coming to him. He's given us the authority. So when we do mess up, we want to be a people known to be after his own heart. It doesn't mean we aren't going to make mistakes, guys. But David was quick to come back to God. He was quick to accept his faults. In adultery, he was quick to go, I said, Lord, help me. Let me pray. Mm. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you just as we see history here and um, we see how you work amazing things out. We see how actually, Jesus, you are at the center of every piece of this story. And you still are now in Freedom Church's story. You're at the center as we proclaim your gospel, we proclaim that good news where someone's received really bad news of death. Sheila can come with that good news that you bring life and life eternally. And I just pray, help us, Lord, help us to to be like David in the sense that we love your presence, that we want to keep coming back to you, Lord Jesus, that we know that we're anointed by your spirit, that we know we can move in your victory, Lord Jesus. Help us not to try and do it in our own strength, Lord. I pray, help us in Jesus' name. Amen.